So we're delighted to be welcomed by Patrice uh, Bain, who's joining us for an Edu Blether today. So welcome, Patrice. Thank you so much. This is a joy for me, and I'm honored that you asked me to be on your show. Thank you. You're very welcome. Um, so just for our listeners then, I wonder if you could just take a, a minute uh, just to kind of give a wee overview or a brief overview of um, your kind of career um, who you are and also what led you to writing um, a book. <laughs> Thanks. I am a veteran teacher. I taught for over 25 years at the middle school level and I really got interested in how do my students learn and way back in 2006, At that time, research was being done on how people learn, but it was usually in universities, in laboratories. And there were two cognitive scientists, uh, Dr. Mark McDaniel and Dr. Roddy, I'm sorry, Henry Rodiger III, he goes by Roddy. Uh, They wrote a large grant to try to uh, investigate how do children learn in an authentic classroom. And this was 2006 and it really had not been done before. Isn't that wild? Mm. And so they got a really large grant through the Institute of Education Science, which is a part of the Department of Education here in the United States. And this authentic classroom that they chose to start this research was mine. And it was thrilling for me to to really start to understand the hows and whys my students learned. The person that I worked close, the most closely with from Washington University here in St. Louis was Pooja Agarwal. So we started this research in my classroom and we worked together. We still do. In fact, she is my co-author of powerful teaching, unleash the science of learning. So the research opened up so much information for me. And I simply, once I I learned the information, I started developing strategies based on this information. And I just wanted to shout from mountaintops that this works. It doesn't matter the age, the background. This is information that works. And it became my mission to to not only teach my own students how to learn, but to spread this, this knowledge that all teachers can do this. Mm. And students have success when they learn how to learn. So that's kind of my background. Yeah, and I'm really interested, Patrice, around the, you spoke there around um, research in the classroom, and that's that's something in Scotland, certainly, that we've been um, probably dipping our toe in the water over the last five, 10 years, actually it's longer than you think now, um, where it's actually part of the standards for teachers. So it's an expectation that every teacher would engage in some sort of practitioner inquiry, 
you know, look at a, a small thing and then look at the research behind it, try something, change it. What What is the culture like um, where you are in America around that? Is that a relatively new thing or is that something that's been encouraged for some time? Well, first of all, excellent job, Scotland, for for having this expectation for teachers. I don't think the United States is there yet. Okay. Uh, we don't have it in our, well, it really depends upon the school. I, sh I should clarify that. Okay. Some schools are very, very active in research and, and the professional development of, of having their teachers learn this research. Mm -hmm. But there are still schools where this is a novelty. Um, about two years ago, I believe it was, I was on a, a working task group mm -hmm. with the National Commission of Education Research in Washington, D.C., and we looked at neurotruths versus neuromyths, mm -hmm. and too often these myths circulate in professional development, myths on how people learn. And so it's really become, it is becoming much more active that we are dispelling some of these myths and really getting into the true science of learning. And it's so important, isn't it? It's, it's one of the most important things teachers can do is well, figure it, out how children learn. It is. And, you know, it's so easy and it doesn't cost any extra money. It doesn't take any extra tools. It is simply and, and it's it's easy to learn. And, and once teachers grasp this. Everything changes. Um, the students learn something else I found was. And I taught sixth grade history, and it was not unusual for students to come to me and say, Mrs. Bain, I have an A or I have a B in your class. And it's like, yes, I know. <laughs> and, and then they would follow this up with, but I never get good grades. I always get Ds and Fs. I'm not smart. And it would, it would just tear at my heart that we would have these 11-year-olds that had already internalized failure. And yet these very students, by the end of the year, by the end of the first semester, were getting A's and B's because they simply now knew how to learn. And I think that is... We have to be able to provide this for our students. When we talk about social emotional learning, when we talk about um, students disengaged, often all we have to do is go back to how do they learn? Mm -hmm. It's not a big secret to teach them. It's not like some kids should be privy to this information and some students shouldn't. But this is something universal, and this is something we can all do. And 
and think if if students can start learning this in the younger grades, think about what will happen in high school when they have felt success all the way through school. It's to me, it's just a game changer. I wonder if we could um, then let's dig deeper into the concepts that you put forward in the book and these 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 um, strategies because I, I loved the book and can I just say congratulations and, and thank you for writing the book I thought it was it was wonderful I thought, oh thank you no not at all it was a really enjoyable read and it really made me challenge my own thinking and and my own thinking about myself as a learner and how I learn uh, I think one of the the main sort of victories for me for the book was just the the clarity with which you put forward these power tools basically and I wonder if for for our listeners, if you could sort of explore those power tools for us, go into what these strategies are that are so powerful, um, and maybe we could talk about them in depth and think about them in, in turn. Is that okay? Oh, thank you. I'd love to. First of all, let me talk about how do we learn, and there's three steps. The first step is encoding, and as teachers, we excel. This is what we do, right? We are able to take the knowledge that we have about our subject and and get that out there to our students. It could be lectures. It could be books. It could be video clips. It could be articles. You know, this is what we do, and we excel at this. That's step one in coding. Step two is storage. It's like once we have put this information out there, it's in our students' heads. But too often, that's where it stops. Many teacher education programs, that's where it stops. We teach, it's in our students' heads. But this third step that is so crucial is retrieval. And Pooja Agarwal has this wonderful quote that just hit home for me. And it is, Instead of concentrating on putting information into our students' heads, what if instead we focus on pulling information out? And this is where learning happens. And so what we want to do is we've already mastered encoding as teachers, but what we want to do is find the ways to get this learning back out of our students' heads, how to retrieve this information because that's where the learning begins. So in powerful teaching, we talked about four power tools. The first one is retrieval, that that very basic third step. How do we pull the information back out? The second one is spacing that what is important is not only that you retrieve or pull this information out, but you schedule times to to retrieve that information again. And that's called spacing or spaced practice. The third one is feedback-driven metacognition. And the fourth one is interleaving. So let me let me talk a little bit more about these. Great. Whenever 
always, on my first day of school, I would always say, I'm your teacher and I'm going to teach you how to learn. And one of the first questions I ask my students is, have you ever really studied hard for a test and you know you're going to nail it and you go in and you take the test and you don't do well? Well, every year, almost every hand goes up. That's that's like universal, right? <laughs> and part of that is because we have not provided our students the opportunity to test their metacognition. And to me, an easy definition is discriminating between what you know and what you don't know. And too often, students are simply not taught this simple skill. So when they are studying for a test, they tend to study what they already know because it's easier, it's comfortable. And they get this, this false sense of security, this false sense of confidence that because they have studied what they already knew, they're ready. But they have tended to ignore a little bit what they didn't know. And we all know the test is going to be over both, right? Mm -hmm. So I came up with some strategies to help students identify before they ever get to the test, what do you know and what do you really need to focus upon? So a couple of the strategies that I used were uh, mini quizzes. And I started this, oh my gosh, the first year that Pooja and I worked together, we studied retrieval practice in the classroom. And we did a final at the end of the year. It was a pop final. It did not go in the grade book, but we really wanted to look at questions that had been retrieved throughout the year. Could students remember more at the end of the year if retrieval had been used versus not? And it was amazing. It was amazing. Students were able to answer questions from the, from the first quarter, from the first semester, even though we had not gone over them for some time. But what really struck me is that when I was, oh, and by the way, it was a pop final because we didn't want students to cram or to study. We wanted to really see what they could remember. So as I was looking at these scores after it was over, I found that my top student who had scored the highest grade point average than any other student had only scored in about the 50th percentile at remembering. And I, how, how is that even possible? And so I really pondered that. And what I realized that my students had totally mastered doing homework. They were able to read a question, look up an answer, write it down and repeat. Mm -hmm. They were not retrieving. And so a student could easily get 100% on every bit of homework, but couldn't talk about it a week later. Mm 
because it had been simply seen and passed over. And so that's when I realized I needed to change what I was doing in my classroom to promote retrieval. So that is, I stopped giving homework that following year, but instead started using many retrieval strategies that I had developed. So one was, as I had mentioned earlier, earlier, these mini quizzes. So what I would do is I would take whatever we would have studied or would have done as homework, I should say, or anything that we had discussed in class, and I would simply put it on little strips of paper and put it in a basket. And we would start every day where I would hand out tiny slips of paper, about two by three inches of recycled paper. Students would number one through five. And I would simply pull out five different random pieces of paper that would have questions. I would ask the questions and the students would answer them. Now, the key to retrieval is that it's low stakes or no stakes. It's real important for your students to understand that this is a learning strategy, not a testing strategy. So as soon as we would finish the mini quiz, I would collect them because I wanted to see what they knew and what they didn't know, but we would go over the answers. And so right there, the students had a chance to retrieve, but it also tested their metacognition. What did they remember from the day before and what still needed work? At the end of the day, instead of spending several hours grading homework at night, I only took, it only took me about 15 minutes to look through all of the mini quizzes I had about 180 students every day, and I could see, were there some similarities in things that were missed? You know, that was on me. I, I needed to reteach that. Were there areas that they missed? Well, then they now had a focus. And then on every, at the end of the day, I would take a look at what questions were in the basket. and. You know, I always started with the end in mind, with my essential questions, with, with chapter tests. And so I knew how to build my retrieval based on the learning that I wanted my students to have at the end of the unit. So at the end of every day, I would take out those questions that I knew would aid my students most in getting towards this goal and I'd put them in a bigger basket. And so every Friday we would have what was called a BBQ, which was a big basket quiz. And this would be questions from all week, the last couple weeks, and I would randomly pick out 10 questions. So now I'm doing retrieval, I'm also spacing, and they're judging, they're able to figure out what they know through metacognition. So those were just those simple mini quizzes. Didn't cost anything, took less than five minutes of class. It was usually I would do this instead of an entrance ticket. And it was so valuable. And what I noticed was that 
my students started listening differently in class because they knew that when we had these discussions, there probably would be some questions on a mini quiz about them. And so I had totally taken away that read a question, look up the answer, write it down, repeat into, into learning. And that was, that was huge for me. Yeah. And I wonder, Patrice, if I can just pick up on some of the things yeah. you just want to talk and I'm just thinking away and I'm thinking in Scotland, um, and probably like most other countries around the world, we've had this obsession with high stakes testing in terms of grades. Yes. Like, and and we've tried to kind of lower the stakes where we've we've looked at some courses and at some levels no longer have a, a kind of end of year exam um, and it's kind of ongoing assessment, but we've kind of crept back towards that high stake testing and we still have that for our our gold standard of qualifications. I'm just wondering, what are the what are the lessons here? Should we be totally moving away from that and much more ongoing assessment? Is what I think. What What are your thoughts? That is such a great question. High stakes testing. I, I'm kind of on the fence with high stakes testing. I think it's how you go about it. Mm -hmm. If, number one, if you give a high stakes test and what has happened is that you spend the two weeks prior to the test really cramming that information so your students will do better on that test, it's not going to reflect true learning. What I think we should do is that what are those, what I call the big ticket items, what are those things that may be on a high stakes test? And let's, it, let's take a look at those and see where does our curriculum line up with that? And then that being said, how are we going to be teaching our students throughout study where we can be using frequent retrieval that are low stakes? We did. So the research that started in my classroom then went to my school and to the high school. So it turned out the study had over 1,500 students and a question was asked, does using retrieval make you more or less anxious for tests? And 87%, I believe that's the number, 87% said it makes them less anxious. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it was only 6% that said, so I, I think my numbers might be off, but it was only 6% that said they were more anxious. And why? Because using retrieval, the students know the information. Their confidence is valid. So by the time a test comes up, even though it is high stakes, the students are so prepared 
that it is it is not anxiety producing. Yeah. What I would use in my in my classrooms is I called I rarely use the word test. I call them celebrations mm-hmm. because this was, you know, when we took a look at what the students knew at the beginning of this unit of study, taking them to the end, it truly was a celebration of all they had learned. So high stakes testing can have such a negative connotation. What we can do if high stakes tests are are going to be necessary, let's change our preparation for them. Let's make sure that we are able to match the learning to what is going to be tested. Let's make sure that the students have ample chances to retrieve, to test their metacognition, to space it out. Yeah. And that makes all the difference, I think. I would agree because we've had a similar debate as well around whether your curriculum is based on knowledge and just learning loads of facts and then regurgitating them or whether it's actually about having a really solid foundation and then you're applying your knowledge to a particular problem and it's a lot more problem solving based questions where you're using skills that are then transferable. Yeah and and what you said too was was a great point. Too often people think that retrieval is mainly regurgitation of facts. But my philosophy is in order to get to critical thinking, you really need to know the facts. You need to be able to transfer your knowledge. So, So for example, with my students, who were 11 years old, uh, they could answer things such as, you know, compare and contrast the French Revolution with the Russian Revolution. Could either of them have been avoided? Justify your answer. Or how throughout history, how do social pyramids change as a result of revolutions? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, so they have to know the facts but what happens is once they they know the facts that's when you get to do this awesome thing that teachers get to do which is taking those facts and and really helping create areas for them to to really express knowledge i think it's i think it that's such an important part that you bring up there and I'm really glad that you did because I I remember when I first was reading the book initially my mind was going to but regurgitation of facts is not the end goal it's not the purpose of education it's not what we're going and then as if you were listening into my thoughts you were saying but critical (laughs) thinking and I remember actually having to stop uh, and think well this this is the key point for me it's it's this bit that's the the crux of it and I think it's the, the the critical thought because for me, what what you empower your learners with with the strategies that you're using and that you lay out in in powerful teaching is that it's that it's true ownership over the learning. The learning yes. becomes theirs. 
rather yes. than the learning be deposited upon. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yes. And and that's too why you can you can call these end results celebrations. You know, students would come in and and they knew the information and and they walked out taller and smiling because they knew they nailed it because they knew it and that's what we want you know my chapter tests always had great essays essential questions whenever i started a new chapter i would have an essential question written up on the board and it usually created a bit of chuckling within my students because they would think, oh, right, Mrs. Bain, like we're ever going to be able to answer that. Mm -hmm. And a month later, they're writing essays on it. Yeah. Because they could. Yeah. And I wonder, Patrice, it's fantastic hearing about this, but there'll be some teachers out there who will probably balk at the idea of, or maybe not balk at the idea, maybe not feel confident or comfortable relinquishing that control, um, but yet they will still want their learners and the young people to be in control of their own learning and actually them to be leading that learning. How do we actually build confidence in our teachers that it's okay to let go a little bit of control and they don't have to know everything and actually they're just guiding that learning? How, how do we build that confidence in our teachers? First of all, I think what you, you alluded to was a really good point that as teachers, we need to guide. And I think that is really important. I also want to say, I didn't give up total control, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Because I, I was an expert of my curriculum. I knew exactly what needed to be taught. And so as a guide, my purpose was to help give students the ownership and the ways to learn. But I still had the control of that ultimate learning that I wanted to happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. So, so yeah, you don't, you don't have to give up total control. You need to, as the guide, as the leader, you still need to maintain that. Mm -hmm. As far as teachers trying some of these things out, I think, first of all, I had you know, 15 years in, in building up these strategies and tweaking them. And so sometimes teachers will think they need to change everything all at once and they don't. And so start small, find out, figure out how students learn, try one or two. And something that we say in the book is each teacher knows their curriculum, knows their students, knows their family, knows their administration. And so 
you do you. Once you once you understand the science of learning, you know, feel free to use my strategies, but feel free to create your own. What will work best in your classroom? You're the master of that. Yeah. And that's a really important message, isn't it? That that sense of empowerment for teachers and for young people that actually there is no set way, but actually people have a lot of control to go and try these things and, and learn from them. And, and like when I told my students, you know, I'm going to teach you how to learn. I let them know that I have many strategies and I will share those. And usually the first semester we would, well, actually the first quarter, it was pretty much I would be sharing strategies. And by second quarter, I would be sharing more strategies, but getting more involvement with yeah. the students. And by the second semester, I had students develop your own strategies. Wow. Here's my strategies. Let's start. You build your own because my students had me for one year, mm -hmm. but their learning goes on forever. Yeah. And so my goal was to not only teach them how to learn, but for them to be able to, to take what they know and apply it in whatever class they're in. I must say that's, it's really refreshing to hear you speak about that. I think I've, I've been doing a lot of reading recently about cognitive science and about architecture of the brain and, and how children learn. And I wonder, can I just share some of my reservations Please. with you, I suppose, to talk to you? It's not coming across at all in the way that, that you're speaking about this. And I think for me, there's a, a, a bit of a um, popular debate at the moment about um, direct instruction versus sort of purely child-led discovery-based models. And I would say in Scotland, definitely, we, we've very much lent towards, at a policy level, more discovery-based, exploratory, child-centred, child-led planning and teaching and learning. Whereas this, um, there very much seems to be much more of a role for, for, for the teacher in, in, in this approach towards how children learn. But, but the way that you speak about that, it seems to sort of bridge the gap between the two. Do you know, it's not explicitly direct instruction. It's this curriculum, just learn these facts and, and get, get on with it. It's a mixture of, of the two. Have these concerns kind of, have you thought about these concerns before or that conflict between direct learning and exploratory learning? Is it a false conflict? Am I just making it up? Help me out. <laughs> I think that is an excellent point and probably a lot of teachers may think that very thought to me they weren't separate mm. uh, as as the teacher again I knew my end goals I knew what was most important for my students to learn. And it might be through some of my direct instruction. It might be through projects that I had the students, you know, explore. But again, I was guiding that. Uh, I think when you do have 
the the students working on on I'm not sure how to say this. I, I just think that the teacher has a major role in making sure that whether it's direct instruction or not, the guiding is really necessary to make sure that the end result is there, that the focus is there. And there are many, many ways to get to that end. And so I don't see a conflict between the two. Great, thank you. <laughs> I think that's, that is a good answer. And I think that's aligning with sort of where I'm coming at from it as well. And I think part part of my, the, the sort of inner conflict I'm having with it is around the, the sort of nature of knowledge. And it's about, whose curriculum is it that we're that we're trying to teach and, and there are questions there for me still it's about um ensuring that that, that critical element of it is still there but i, I see that the, the building of schema and empowering children with knowledge i think so long as you're viewing it through that lens rather than just passing tests and improving results and we've touched oh. on that so yeah. absolutely yes 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 Excellent. No, that's it's lovely hearing that from you. Definitely. Um, another question that we had was, I suppose, <clears throat> around the nature of the 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 um, amount of literature that's coming out now about the cognitive science and the science of learning. It's it's a really sort of fashionable. Um, subject at the moment, I think, because there's been so many advancements in in that area. Um, it, why do you think because I know though some of the some of those advancements are maybe what 20 30 years old now why is why do you think it's sort of coming into public consciousness just now oh then you have such great questions <laughs> why do I think it is becoming prominent honestly I think one of the reasons is because of social media because we are so much more connected right now. If you go back 15 years ago, you know, my book might have simply been written and on a shelf and maybe through word of mouth. But instead, with social media, people have talked about this book. There have been podcasts, webinars, and you know, like what you are doing, what is happening is people are able to, to find what works, what works well, what is based in truth, what is based in science. And, and that is now being shared more widely. And because it's being shared more widely, more people have access and more people are starting to pursue why this works over perhaps the way we were taught in teacher preparation programs or or maybe some learning myths that we were taught in professional development. So I think just the way the world has changed is allowing us to share really important information. Mm -hmm. I wonder, Patrice, so 
obviously people listening to this will be thinking this is fantastic heard a lot about retrieval practice before are there any barriers or any downsides to to this type of approach in terms of how young people learn let's see downsides i i don't see any <laughs> i think i think a downside could possibly be if if you as a teacher might retrieve something and say okay you know we talked about this yesterday we talked about this last week and then they don't go back to it so maybe the downside is if there's some misinformation in maybe not knowing how to do retrieval, how to space the retrieval out, how to uh, how to or why teachers maybe give a test where students had never tested their metacognition prior. So I think the downside is maybe having a little bit of knowledge, but not having enough to follow through. Yeah, with that kind of how successful these are. Yeah, you spoke about that earlier in the terms of the misconception that people maybe think it's about regurgitation. And if people are, are not clear on, on what retrieval practice is, they've not kind of looked at some of the strategies, they try it and then probably get a bit disheartened because it's no different. Whereas actually, it's it's different, as you said, and as yeah. you in the Powerful Teaching book. Yeah, and something else I, I wanted to say is that I talked about mini quizzes, but there are several strategies that we use in the book that are based all on these power tools. And if you go to www.powerfulteaching.org, you can download all of the templates for free for all of the um, strategies that we talk about in the book. That's amazing. And what a fantastic resource. I've, uh, I've taken them myself. I, I uh, spoke at a workshop before at JC's school, actually, and I uh, stole a lot of those ideas. I credited them to you, but I definitely pointed people in the direction because they're just wonderful resources and so uh, succinct and to the point. So thanks. Thanks for creating them. Oh, thanks for sharing them. <laughs> Not at all. I wonder, I'm, I'm very conscious um, of your time Patrice and I think that the conversation's just been absolutely fantastic and I think uh, our listeners will get a lot from it and I wonder as a as a sort of a parting thought for us obviously um, we will recommend and we're sharing the resources on the website as well as saying um, to to read or to listen to the book because you can get it on audible as well um, but mm -hmm. what else would you say if people are really interested in this and wanting to sort of read widely around this and read widely around the science of learning where, where would you point people in the direction of well again I think social media is fantastic there are wonderful people to follow uh, on Twitter, for example. I know Pooja Agarwal, my co-author, has a wonderful site called retrievalpractice.org. And she gives brief snapshots every week of, of 
ideas, strategies for teachers to try, but there's also a wealth of information on research. She has practice guides on there. So I would suggest her site. Uh, some of my favorite people to follow on um, Twitter. Uh, I love uh, the cult of pedagogy. Jennifer Gonzalez has great podcasts as well. Uh, the Effortful Educator, Blake Harvard, always has great uh, articles. The uh, CTTL, the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning with uh, Glenn Whitman and Ian Kelleher are, is another great source. So there are really terrific, and I know I'm leaving out so many, but those are some of my top favorites. I just, Brilliant. they're out there, you know, the information is free, it's here, it's now. And how will people connect with you, Patrice, if, if, if they want to get in touch, if they want to reach out on social media? Oh, please. I am on Twitter. I'm Patrice Bain One. And Excellent. something else, Pooja and I have an online book club and uh, we have, oh gosh, teachers from at least 51 different countries where we are able to share ideas um, from all over the world. And that link, it's a little bit longer, but it's on Facebook. It's uh, facebook.com slash groups slash powerful teaching. And so that's another great place to get more information. Superb. Excellent. We'll, we'll put links to, to all of these recommendations and, and all of these links on, on the show notes and things so that our listeners can can click through and listen. Patrice, thank you so much. What a, what a wonderful interview. Uh, you're our, our first international guest. It's, uh, we broke up now. <laughs> <laughs> I am absolutely honored not only to be on your show, but also to be your first international guest. How how humbling for me. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for all that you are doing to help kids all over learn. This is awesome. Thank you. And thanks so much. It's been, I'll echo what Jude has said. It's been so interesting and no doubt we could sit in and chat for ages and ages about this because I think one thing we realize is there are so many passionate people out there around the world who really care about education and learning uh, for young people. So really thank you so much for um, agreeing to join us.